Margaret Mead said, Never believe that a few caring people can't change the world, for indeed, that's all who ever have. Welcome to the Soul Podcast. I'm Stacy Wheeler. Today I'm going to talk about the science of good feelings and how doing good is good for us. When we're done, I'll have something cool to share with you. Something I think you'll like. But don't fast forward. Hang out a bit. First, let me tell you a story. There's an inscription at the base of a statue in an English town of Bedford which reads, No white person has done more for South Africa than Trevor Huddleston. You may never have heard of Trevor Huddleston, but there's a good chance you've heard the name Nelson Mandela. You see, the words at the base of the statue are the words of Mandela. Mandela became famous while serving 27 years as a political prisoner in South Africa before being released and finally becoming the first black leader of that nation. He had been imprisoned for raising a movement to oppose his government's segregationist policy known as apartheid. At the time that he was imprisoned, one of the most vocal advocates for his release was an archbishop named Desmond Tutu. And it was only by an early twist of fate that Desmond had become an archbishop and was in the position to actually make a difference. Not only was Tutu an archbishop, he was the Bishop of Johannesburg, the first black Bishop of Johannesburg. Because of his role, he was able to become a loud voice in opposition of Mandela's jailing, which led to a greater international outcry about it, until Mandela was finally released from jail. But we have to wonder, would Mandela have been released if Tutu hadn't become a priest? If Tutu hadn't become a priest, would Mandela have gone on to become the first black leader of South Africa? It's hard to say, but joining the clergy gave Tutu a platform he was able to use to make a difference for Mandela and for his country. The two men grew in prominence together, and Tutu was once asked to identify the defining moment in his life. He told a story of a day when he was nine years old, and he and his mother were walking down the street. He said a tall white man dressed in a black suit came towards them. In those days, the days of apartheid in South Africa, when a black person and a white person met while walking down a footpath, the black person was expected to step into the gutter to allow the white person to pass and to nod their head in a gesture of respect. But this day, before the young Desmond and his mother could step off the sidewalk, the white man stepped off the sidewalk, and as they passed, he tipped his hat in a gesture of respect to her. Tutu had never seen a white man do such a thing. Tutu said, I was relatively stunned at the time. It was something I could have never imagined. The impossible was possible. Later, he learned that the man was Trevor Huddleston, an Anglican priest who bitterly opposed apartheid. That day changed Tutu's life, he said. When his mother told him Trevor Huddleston had stepped off the sidewalk because he was a man of God, Tutu said that in that moment he found his calling. He said, When she told me he was an Anglican priest, I decided there and then I wanted to be an Anglican priest too. And what's more, I wanted to be a man of God. They met a few years later when Tutu was admitted to the hospital for tuberculosis and Huddleston visited him. When Tutu joined the clergy, Huddleston became his mentor. There's no way that Trevor Huddleston could have known the ripple effects his actions would have, but his kindness made a difference in the life of a stranger, a country, and an entire group of people in that country. Huddleston was kind to Tutu, Tutu was empowered to speak out in support of Mandela because of his position, and Mandela was freed and was able to make a difference in the lives of millions of people in his country. That's the ripple effect of kindness. And you know, 
Huddleston isn't as rare as you might think. Here's another story about ripple effects. A doctor was touring Tewksbury Institute in Massachusetts in the early 1900s, when on his way out, he accidentally bumped into an elderly floor maid. They began to talk, and noting how long she had worked there, he asked what she might be able to tell him about the history of the place. The maid replied that she really couldn't tell much about the history, but that she could show him something. She led him down to the basement under the oldest section of the building. She pointed to one of what looked like small prison cells. That's the cage where they used to keep Annie Sullivan, she said. The doctor asked, who's Annie? And the maid explained that Annie was a young girl who was brought there because she was uncontrollable and nobody could do anything with her. She said the girl would bite and scream and throw her food at people. She said the doctors and nurses couldn't even examine her. She was too unruly. She would sometimes spit and scratch at them. At the time, the maid wasn't much older than Annie, and she wondered how terrible it must be to be locked in a cage like that. She wanted to help Annie, but didn't really have any ideas how she could do that. After all, if the doctors and nurses couldn't help her, what could she do? The maid said she decided to make Annie some baked treats one night after work. The next day, she brought them in. She walked carefully to the cage and told Annie she baked brownies for her. She put them on the floor and moved away because she was afraid Annie might throw them back at her. But she didn't. She took the brownies and she ate them. After that, she said Annie started to get softer when she was around. She was just a little nicer, and they started to connect. Sometimes the maid would talk to her. Once, she said, she even got Annie laughing. The maid probably didn't know what Annie had been through. Her mother had died, and she and her younger brother, Jimmy, had lived in poverty until their father abandoned them to the poorhouse at Tewksbury. Shortly after they arrived, Jimmy died too. She was all alone in the world, partially deaf, partially blind, and emotionally distraught. No one understood her pain. The maid showed her a little kindness when she needed it the most, and they became closer every day. One of the nurses noticed the way the two interacted and told the doctor about it. They asked the maid if she might help them with Annie, and she agreed. So every time they wanted to see Annie to examine her, the maid went into the cage first and explained to Annie what was going on, held her hand, and calmed her. Because of this, the doctor was able to discover that Annie was almost blind, which explained a lot about her behavior. After moving Annie out of the basement and working with her for about a year, she was transferred to the Perkins Institute for the Blind, where she was able to go to school. She learned and improved her ability to communicate using sign language. By the time she graduated, she decided to become a teacher for the blind. Annie went back to Tewksbury Institute to visit and to see how she could help. The doctor remembered a letter he had received. A man had written to him about his daughter, and he said she was completely unruly, almost like an animal. She was blind and deaf, and he said she was deranged. He was at his wit's end, but he didn't want to put her in an asylum. So he wrote to the Institute to ask if they might know someone who could come and help. And that is how Annie Sullivan became the teacher and lifelong companion of Helen Keller. Helen became an author, disabled rights advocate, political activist, a lecturer. She helped found the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. Because of her influence, she changed the way children born deaf and blind are treated today. In her time, they were seen as disposable people. Today, they're treated with dignity and given the same chance as anyone else is to try to make it in this life. Her story showed that lack of speech and sight didn't make a person less valuable to society or less of a person. Today, Helen Keller is seen as one of the most influential people of the 20th century. Eventually, Helen was nominated for a Nobel Prize, and a reporter asked her, who had the biggest impact on her life? And she answered, of course, Annie Sullivan. 
But she was interrupted by Annie, who quickly signed into her palm that the person who had changed both of their lives was a kind floor maid from the Tewksbury Institute. This floor maid didn't do what she did because she thought it would have ripple effects. She did it because she had a kind heart. She could have never imagined that kindness was her superpower. A kind stranger can make a difference. If she hadn't been kind to Annie, would Annie have gotten the help she needed? Would there have been anyone who could have known how to free Helen from her blindness and deafness? If Helen didn't have Annie, who would have done the work that Helen did, helping tens of thousands of blind and deaf people, and changing the way the world would treat the blind and the deaf forever? That's the ripple effect of kindness. Sometimes the smallest act of kindness can have a lasting influence. When a person is struggling or feeling minimized, the kindness of another person could have the power to change that life. And kindness isn't a new idea. Around 580 BCE, the Greek writer Aesop wrote, no act of kindness, no matter how small, is ever wasted. More recently, the Dalai Lama said, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. So why aren't we more kind to each other each day? Why do so many of us avoid eye contact or conversation with strangers? Fear is a core feature of the human being. We tend to weigh our actions through the measure of fear. This is a deeply embedded survival instinct that goes back to our earliest levels of evolution. Where we once may have feared wild animals, enemy tribes, or theft of food, we now fear other things. Some tangible, others more intangible. Really, just projected fear. A kind of what-if kind of fear. If I do this, then that might happen. That sort of thing. There are many reasons we fear being kind to strangers. Here are a few of the more common ones. We fear that people may take advantage of our kindness. We fear people may perceive our kindness as weakness. And we fear people might confuse our being nice with flirting. You know, it's easy to hold a few bills out at a stoplight for a person flying a cardboard sign. There's really little at risk here. It's a short interaction. It's transactional, really. We feel good for helping them, and they feel good about getting the money. But we don't really connect with that person. There's not enough time at a stoplight. And most of us don't want to risk it anyway. So we don't connect. Not the way we would if we brought them a sandwich and sat with them a while. There's something powerful about sitting with another and listening to them, hearing them, and truly seeing them. There's something about being seen that touches the soul. We never know what good our words or actions may have. We can't know what ripple effects may come from it. But we do know it's good for us to be kind. A 2018 Harvard study found that people who intentionally showed acts of kindness for a week reported higher levels of happiness than those who didn't. Kindness works for the giver and for the receiver. But kindness can be challenging for some of us. Maybe you're one of those rare people who don't have discomfort when talking to strangers. I know at least a few people like this. My oldest brother is one of those guys. He's got the ability to talk to anyone. He's innately kind. He's fearless in his friendliness. Or at least he appears to be. If he's uncomfortable talking to strangers, I can't tell. I'm an outgoing guy, but I, I struggle with this still. It's an ongoing effort for me. Sometimes it's just that I don't feel social. So it feels forced, you know, when I try to connect with strangers. More often than not, the reason I avoid connecting is fear of having strangers misinterpret my intentions. Six years back, I learned an interesting lesson about the way we see others. I was attending a weekend retreat at a hot springs in California. I had gotten to the retreat center early because I wanted to meditate and drop into a softer heart space before the event began. 
It was being held at a center in the forest, and there were beautiful trails all around, so I went for a walk. Ultimately, I was standing on a footbridge above a stream, listening to the birds and the stream trickling. Light was coming through the trees and casting off the water, and it was sparkling, and it was just, it was just amazing. It's just breathing in the sense of the forest and listening to the stream. I was utterly peaceful. About that time, a woman and her husband passed me on the narrow bridge, and I moved aside and I nodded a hello as they passed, but I didn't speak. I kind of wanted to stay in the moment. It turned out they were attending the retreat as well, so we, we ran into each other a couple of times, connected a little bit, but not much. But we did run into each other again at a retreat later down the road, just by chance. And after she got to know me, she confided in me that when she first met me on the bridge, she thought I looked large and intimidating, and that I turned out to be much different than she originally imagined me to be. She was admitting to me her own projections. And you know, that share was a gift to both of us. She realized that our projections are often based in fear and often very wrong. Most people aren't out to hurt us or intimidate us. Most people are like us. We're reserved based on our projected fears. The gift I got was that I realized that a tall, bald, white guy wearing a bandana can look like an intimidating man to some people, even if he's feeling immensely peaceful and listening to a stream trickle. I learned that a nod and a smile is not the same as a hello or a good morning or other kind greeting. If a stranger can see me as a tall, intimidating figure, when I'm at a high level of personal peace, then how many times have I been wrong in my assumption about people I passed on the street? I still struggle with the fear that people may misinterpret my intentions, but I'm working on it. I'm getting better at dropping my first impressions of strangers as well. Each time I intentionally say hi to a stranger, I get more comfortable with myself. Being outgoing is a better place for me to be than wondering if a stranger worries about the tall guy walking towards them. You know, a simple good morning can disarm that fear. It can also diffuse fears I may be carrying as I pass a person who looks intimidating to me. Usually when we say hello to a stranger, they smile and return the greeting. And people I think look scary suddenly become just like me. Just another person trying to find a comfort level in how they interact with strangers. Do you struggle with being kind to strangers? Have you considered why it's challenging? Our reluctance is usually based in fear. Take a minute or two today, sit with that question. Why aren't you more outgoing? Consider how kindness has changed the lives I talked about today. If the kindness of a white man in South Africa and a floor maid at a hospital can make a difference, imagine the ripple effects your lovely voice might have. Find the space that's a little challenging for you. Maybe your space is just saying hi to a stranger in line at the grocery or hello to a person you pass on the street. Or maybe you're more advanced like that floor maid. Maybe you'll begin by being kind to someone who's been cast aside like Annie Sullivan. We grow by leaning into our challenges when we do, we expand. Today, lean into the kindness zone and do it again tomorrow and the day after. I guarantee it'll make you feel good and you can't know the difference it might make in the life of the person who receives the kindness you put into the world. Now for that bonus I talked about. Emory University has done extensive research on the science of compassion. Yeah, how about that? Compassion is a science. It's just great. They developed what they call CBCT, or Cognitive-Based Compassion Training, which they describe as a system of contemplative exercises designed to strengthen and sustain compassion. The program is supported and promoted by the actor Richard Gere, who's a Buddhist and a meditator. This program is a self-paced 21-day journey comprised of a video series. 
and it features a 21-day compassion challenge. I'll share a link in the show notes. I want to share this with you because I think you'll find it beneficial. And that little gift I mentioned at the beginning of the show, here it is. There's no cost for it. They put it out to you as an act of kindness to a stranger. There's a wonderful book about the life of Annie Sullivan and her lifelong friendship with Helen Keller. I'll share a link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Soul Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, learned something new, or were just entertained, please tell your friends about the show. This is the best way for people to find the show.